almost think of the, the startup journey as trying to kind of build a vehicle and go through the forest or go down a path, right? The bumpier that road is for your employees, the people inside of the vehicle with you, the more energy they're going to spend trying to smooth that road out so they can continue. Your job as a leader is to create an environment in which the people who that you've hired who are great at what they do can focus on operating from a place of strength and achieving the results that you've agreed are the, both the company's results and the individual's results. So rather than just getting out of their way, you know, I think what we want to do is just hire good people and then pave them a road to success. Um, well, just to get started, following a short break off air, we're officially kicking off uh, series two of Scaling So Far. And we are now officially a podcast available to listen to on your favorite podcast platform like Spotify or Apple or Amazon. Other podcast providers are available, of course, um, which is really, really exciting. And uh, over the next few months, we'll be having really candid conversations with tech founders and people leaders talking about how they've built and scaled their teams, hear anecdotes, bust and myths, which is always my favorite part. Um, and chat to some really remarkable minds in the startup and scale-up space. Um, so welcome to a dose of behind-the-scenes insight to help get a, and inspire a people-first approach to business and beyond. And I'm really proud to kick off uh, this series, this this first one, with um, Simon De Jesus Rodriguez. Simon is Chief of Staff at Curio the company that is handpicking content from leading publications and turning them into really beautifully narrated audio that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. And uh, we'll hear a bit more about Curio from Simon later. Um, but having previously held the role of Chief of Staff at high growth tech startup nested.com, Simon has done a, has a ton of experience partnering closely with founders and CEOs delivering scaling success. Whew, that was a mouthful. Simon, welcome to the show. How are you? How's 2020? How's Christmas? How's all of that? <laughs> well, a lot of questions in there. Thank you very much for having. I'm very excited to be a guest on the show. If we can put 2020 where it is, uh, I think more than enough has been said outside of this forum, but I'm very, very excited and happy to be talking about an audio platform on a podcast as well. So be prepared to venture into the world of the meta. It is very better, isn't it? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your story. Um, have you always been in startups, in people-focused type roles? So, yeah, I actually have not always been in startups or people roles. I began my career at Bain & Company in the U.S. in Boston, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. doing your very textbook classic associate consultant up through to consultant trajectory. Mm -hmm. So, really kind of ran the gamut in terms of my exposure to different industries and different capabilities and practice areas, which from, from where I sat was really good for sharpening a lot of these strategic and operational skills that I would go on to use quite a lot in some of the generalist roles that I took later. Mm -hmm. So after Bain um, took a little bit of time off and that time off was really an opportunity, I think, to reflect on you know, when you leave Bain, you're kind of given this really powerful and extraordinarily valuable generalist toolkit, but then you're faced with this really mm -hmm. difficult question, which is, okay, you're a Swiss Army knife, you know, which tree are you going to go and cut down, right? <laughs> so uh, took that time off to think about it, and it really just became evident to me that to have a direct impact, to be working with really en energizing folks uh, who tended to come from a bit more atypical and circuitous 
you know, career tracks, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. startups and scale-ups felt like the right opportunity for me. And a scale-up was a little bit less risky than a startup um, initially for me to kind of dip my toes into the pool to go from a highly structured environment to something a little bit more uncertain. And that's where I found Nested. Um, really enjoyed my time there, starting working in business operations, more on the strategic and operational side of things, mm-hmm. up through to working as Matt Robinson's chief of staff for a bit at the end of my tenure. And so it was kind of at that point where the strategy started to intersect to the more people-focused side of things, because I think what you realize, um, or you might begin to be tempted to believe as an analyst or BizOps associate, is that you know enough strategy and enough data and enough analysis will get you to the optimal outcome. That can be an assumption that you can build on over time. And the closer I got to the chief of staff role, and even now, the more I realized that the power of really driving results in these organizations, particularly in startups that can be so ambiguous and at times chaotic, is to take the lens of looking at the person, looking at their motivations, looking at their support networks, their professional development trajectories as really the fundamental unit of any company, right? It is always the people that produce a product that create profit. And that is the logical sequence of things, right? The product is not the product in that sense. The people are the company that produces the product. So that's how I got to where I am now. And since then have been able to focus a little bit more on actually trying to drive some of the people side of things indirectly through that operational sense. I think a lot of similar uh, people leaders will find that the boundary between people and operation is typically very, very blurry, particularly in early stage startups when you're trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what someone's role is and that's kind of critically linked with things like their title their professional development trajectory and their own motivations wow um i think i'm well i don't think i know i've worked with with people with your similar kind of background before particularly um when i was back at linkedin and and google where they had like really big biz ops teams that that had the the kind of background that you do and and i have to say like from my own experience i did spend an enormous amount of time collaborating with those teams. So it's good to hear that, you know, in your role that, that that's been similar in even, you know, somewhat um, sort of smaller startups and that kind of thing. But if there is one phrase that I'm going to take from what you just said, it is I'm a Swiss army knife and I needed to figure out what tree to cut down. I think that is such an amazing analogy for the experience that you get when you move from consulting and, and then go into the, the broader world and some people go into corporate, some people go into scale-ups and startups like you have. So, um, yeah, what a, what a brilliant way to describe that. And so now you're the chief of staff at Curio. Can you tell me a little bit about the vision, the mission, and kind of the purpose of Curio and what you guys are doing? Absolutely. I think a lot of startups say that, you know, they're out to save the world. <laughs> and I don't think we're trying to save the world, but fundamentally, uh, we're trying to use the power of audio to make people in their day-to-day lives just a bit more empathetic, uh, fulfilled, and hopefully wiser if we can. Mm-hmm. Um, the premise of Curio was really based on this kind of fundamental realization that there is so much valuable content, particularly within the journalistic realm, that is trapped either behind paywalls or it doesn't get the light of day on the front page of different newspapers and things. Um, <clears throat> Whether that is an article in the FP that might be a long read on climate change, whether that's a piece of artificial intelligence thought leadership in the MIT Tech Review, right? There is really, really good content where, as a society, we're sinking enormous amounts of time developing that really doesn't get democratized. And audio today is a medium that is both picking up in prevalence and penetration as we have new smart technologies that allow it to become the case, and from a 
consumer behavior standpoint, is just becoming really easy to embed in the day-to-day, whether it was pre-COVID where listening to podcasts kind of replaced radio on the way to work in your commute, or even today when we kind of see behavior shifts and people want to listen to something to be stimulated to get company while they are out on a walk or cooking or doing the laundry, right? So really it's about saying, how can we take all of this trapped content and try to democratize it in a way that's super easy to use for our users. Um, and then to build a really sort of valuable curation layer on top of that, um, simply because there's so much content in the world that today, you know, if anything, we're paralyzed for choice, um, whether that's with entertainment or with things that we listen to. So what does that mean that we do, right? At Curio, we pay professional actors to read out what was previously written articles from a number of publications like the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times and The Guardian to read these tracks to you. Um, and where we're at as a company is really interesting. We closed our Series A earlier in the year. Um, mm-hmm. And that means that it's all about going from being a very high powered team to building the backbone and the skeleton of a company, right? Um, and I think there's a subtle mind shift that happens there where you're saying, okay, we're gonna start to specialize a little bit. We're gonna start to formalize Uh, some of the things that we know into certain processes and systems and heuristics just to reduce friction in the way that we produce our high-powered results. And in the process, let's bring some more people on this journey to see how much more Mm -hmm. we can really get done. Fantastic. I I have to admit, everything that you've just said has really kind of um, uh, evoked like a real passion in me because I also used to read everything all of the time. I'm one of those people who's old enough to have had magazine subscriptions once upon a time and I don't do any of that anymore. And I think, yeah, like how much information, how much knowledge, how much curiosity um, is not being leveraged anymore because we, we don't access those platforms, um, those kinds of media anymore. So it's a, it's a fantastic proposition. Um, what's your journey been like at Curio so far? It's a great question. Yeah, to be honest, the reason that I ended up joining Curio was because uh, I was a user of the product before I was actually Mm -hmm. sort of involved in the hiring process. Uh, My journey has been an interesting one. So I joined um, back in May. So after the initial sting of lockdown had Mm -hmm. already begun, um, but still fully remotely and had done the entire hiring and onboarding process completely remotely. Um, Now, it's interesting because the, the job spec and the need of the job for me to join was really to say that we had a team of pretty specialized, strong experts across the company. And that had been working really well to get us to the point to prove what we need to do for Series A. And bringing on someone like a head of operations or a chief of staff, which is what the role ultimately became, was a way of saying, we know that there are some things that we need to get down so that we can just execute and operate a bit more quickly right? Um, Can we have someone who has the ears of the co-founders and can work across all of the managerial layer to ultimately drive whatever results we needed? So when I joined, it was a very broad remit. And in the past six months, uh, what I work on kind of fluctuates, I think, across four different verticals, right? There's one vertical, which is the kind of the strategic aspect of what I do, which is talking with the co-founders to help them think through long-term company strategy, financial planning, board preparation. I think that's the textbook strategy that a lot of ex-consultants are familiar with. There's a second piece, which is operational, which is just about saying, hey, what do we do today? How do we do it? And do we need to rethink, say, our meeting cadence or the way that we run our all hands or the way that we do OKRs Mm -hmm. um, and providing as much support as I can to facilitate those different processes. 
The third piece is really where I can start to focus on the people and the HR side of things, which is to say, uh, we're a really, really lean team. Uh, and that means that the people function that we have is super lean as well. So how can we take what we have, build on really the beginning of a really strong culture and try to turn that into something that's repeatable and scalable without losing that magic of what makes the Series A company. And the last piece is just trying to get involved in the data aspect of things because to build a data-driven business, part of that is using it to drive strategy and part of it is just then to embed it and kind of evangelize that to the entire team as your data stack evolves. So those four can span quite a lot of, of the entire company and ultimately, I'm really happy that I get to sit across all of those and mm. keep a really close pulse to see what the business needs at different times. So the first six months has been a lot of listening, a lot of relationship building, trying to do the necessary things first. So mm. do all hands the way that we think we need to get it done. Try to get an OKR process up and running in the way that we do. Um, be Mr. Fix-It as and when is needed to jump on things as they arise. Try to free up some capacity from different teams for uh, different strategic meetings or board preparation. And I think the really exciting thing is that in 2021, um, we will have co coalesced a lot of the hires that we made on the back of Series A. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks out there can empathize with the first three to six months of that new period where you get a lot of new uh, head ofs or manager level hires that you make Series A to really catalyze development. And that frankly just takes you know several months to get all of the butts in the right seats and understanding who's doing what. Um, COVID has compounded that. So 2021 really becomes a year of aggressive top line growth for us and internally saying, okay, we know what all the pieces are. Now let's just put them together to build something really cool. And I think it's really interesting, like so many people that I've spoken to in this series of, of podcasts, that you're really prioritizing culture at such an early stage as well and making sure that even in the remote working landscape that that culture is a core part of how you build your organization, whether that's from a process standpoint, from a people standpoint, product standpoint as well. I mean, it, it, it really does permeate so much of what we do in, in the space that we both work in. Um, what's some of the biggest learnings that you've had in the, in the time that you've been at Curio? I imagine <laughs> probably quite a few based on what you just said. <laughs> there are quite a few for sure, but I do want to go back and talk about one thing you just touched on around culture because yeah. I, think it's, I think it's so right. And there are two two big things that I think um, on that point that are so important about trying to be really thoughtful and even talking explicitly about what type of culture you want to build. One is so many founders and early stage um, entrepreneurs will know that, look, your, your job or one way to look at your job is to say, I need to make decisions with imperfect information that maximize upside and reduce risk, right? And so many of those decisions, especially on the people side or the, even the pr procedural side, will often come down to value judgments and being super clear about what those yeah. value judgments are, whether it's something as small as the timeline and the speed with which you give feedback to an interview candidate as to whether or not they got it or what that feedback was, mm. um, or the way that you're going to decide to carve up a new function in the business across an existing hire versus a new hire who's maybe more senior but less tenured at the company, right? All mm. of these set your company up on a particular inertia path effectively for the culture and that makes it very much a today problem so that if you're not thoughtful it can easily become something where you end up in kind of a Nash equilibrium where you've been making decisions that may not be optimal which is why I think when we think about institutionalizing a lot of these policies or processes whatever they may be um, culture needs to be at the fore and to say from a values perspective does this align yeah. with exactly what we want to project mm -hmm. and do we believe in this mm. um, thank you 
<laughs> so that's <laughs> and that, yeah. that that would no, and it's also like it's really interesting to hear you talk about some of these things as well that are quite um, things like culture and values like can be quite nebulous um, for people to to kind of comprehend how you apply that and to hear you describe it as relating to decision making relating to process improvement you know makes it real makes it concrete for for people who who might be out there listening thinking what's this you know culture and values that everybody's talking about all the time so um thank you for that um and so back to learning what have been some of your big learnings and like i said it sounds like it might have been a bit of a baptism of fire in, in, in this past little period so yeah hmm. well Seriously. i think i think everyone everyone working at a series a company will will know that there are always periods that feel difficult and i think a lot of what we're experiencing too is either covid related and some of the learnings i guess in general too when you're at a Series A company, you are still in a period of quiet and calm existential threat, right? <laughs> you haven't proven it out yet, so you have you do really have a lot to prove. Um, but I think the 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 thought that I keep returning to um, is the following: as a leader in some of these early stage companies, the greatest way that you can create leverage, and leverage is really the name of the game is to focus on building systems that create an environment of learning, trust, and accountability to results. Um, so it's kind of a big statement, but unpacking the different bits. First is when you go from being a small team of a lot of people executing larger company, that involves specialization, that involves more internal communication, um, and that will feel like you're spending less time executing the actual work. And that's a feature, mm -hmm. not a bug. So the best thing that you can do as a leader then is to focus on ways through your communications, through your meeting cadence, through your operations to say, look, I had all of these things up in my head that I used to be able to tell each person individually one-to-one -one, about how we want to get things done, how we make decisions. The number of decisions and the complexity of the org will continue to grow exponentially, but your time is fixed and constrained. Mm -hmm. So you need to focus on giving your team the tools to think in the ways that you want them to think, whether that's decision-making heuristics, small processes around how you do these things, um, or even embedding them in your people processes, right? And the way that you think about reward, progression, and professional development. Um, so while it can be tempting to jump in and solve the fire, it requires a lot of wherewithal to step back and say, you know, is this fire that I'm seeing now symptomatic of something else that is a deeper root cause? And how can I address that root cause such that I solve it once and I solve it for the future forevermore. Mm -hmm. um, and really, I think that the way that I've seen that done best is to really focus on learning and trust building, especially in the early phases, to, be, to give that confidence around relinquishing control and providing more guidance from a high level with kind of less visibility about the day to day. Um, and really when it comes down to it, to, to building trust, which is really, especially in a chief of staff or people role, trust is the currency of everything that mm -hmm. you can achieve. Uh, listening is really the best path that I've found to trust building. Um, and it sounds so simple, but it's really, honestly, one of the hardest things that I think I can do and a really hard skill to learn. I don't think it's something that we frankly teach um, or are taught at any point is to really how to listen well and to build empathy with the folks that we're working with. Um, it's not so much like a cockamamie or spiritual or, you know, pseudoscientific thing. Um, but what I'm talking about is, especially when you're new, especially as you're getting up to speed, or even when you know there's a problem and you know you need to solve it. Taking simple steps to ask either your manager or your peer 
or someone outside of it, what they think, what their experience is, and to try to deeply understand where they are coming from, um, especially when it comes to resolving divergent opinions on when to come to a decision. Um, that listening aspect, when I've seen leaders and when I've seen others listen well, um, it creates an environment in which everyone is allowed to contribute their best. You tend to see greater workplace confidence, better results, and a, a, mm -hmm. a sort of higher motivation to accountability um, in the way that you run those things. So that fundamentally, that aspect of listening, that aspect of building trust um, and trying to build that into your environment is, it may sound simple, but is it incredibly hard to execute in practice and, and requires doing the work day in, day out and meetings big and small. I have to say, um, you, you mentioned the word, I was, you were talking about building trust, you were talking about listening. And as you were talking, I was thinking empathy, empathy, empathy. And then you said, I'm building empathy. And, and I know that, you know, particularly in, in very small teams, being empathetic towards each other can be quite easy because everybody knows each other really well and maybe is working side by side really, really closely, really ferociously for a period of time. Whereas, you know, over time as a company scales and you talked about relinquishing control. And again, that's, that's not just the CEO or the, or the founders empathizing with the people they're bringing on board, but the other way around as well, like recognizing that it could be hard for that person to let go, that it could be hard for them to relinquish their, you know, their, their baby that they've been working on for such a long time. And, um, and yeah, tr trust, you know, in, in the workplace, I don't think it's cockamamie. I don't think it's pseudoscience. I've been working in, in the world for a lot longer than most of my team have been alive. So um, I can, I, I can assure you that it is, you know, regardless of technology, you know, chat, Slack, whatever it might be, those kind of things just never go away. Um, is there any early or even recent BS advice or a myth that you've heard about that you would like to just blow apart for us today? Mm -hmm. um, for sure. I, Thinking, thinking through this question, you know, at, at first, I think it seems tough because I think there is a lot of good advice out in the world. And to be honest, I think a lot of the, I don't think anyone ever gives out malicious advice. I think sometimes the advice is maybe taken out of context or maybe heard and, and interpreted in a different way. Um, but there, there actually, there are a couple that I think, um, especially recently have come to, to crystallize in the forefront, not because it's happened recently, but even going mm -hmm. through the thought process of trying to think it through. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the myths that I would, like to correct or debunk is this idea of hiring good people and getting out of their way. That's advice I've heard before, right? Which is like hire the right people. We've all heard it. Out, yeah. Get out of their way. Yeah. Everyone's heard that. Yeah. And I think that this, this advice, the way I interpret it, it comes from an intent to say, we want to build a culture of autonomy, right? And we want to bring in the best people at what they can do, right? So it come, it starts from the greatest of intention, which is I want to build a place where I can have smart people feel like they can go and build the company of the future that they and we all want mm -hmm. to build. I think where this goes awry is in the second half when we say it and get out of their way, right? I think what can sometimes happen is if you almost think of the, the startup journey as trying to kind of build a vehicle and go through the forest or go down a path, right? The bumpier that road is for your employees, the people inside of the vehicle with you, the more energy they're going to spend trying to smooth that road out so they can continue. Mm -hmm. Your job as a leader is to create an environment in which the people who, that you've hired who are great at what they do can focus on operating from a place of strength and achieving the results that you've agreed are the, both the company's results and the individual's results. So rather than just getting out of their way, you know, I think what we want to do is just hire good people and then pave them a road to success. And that looks mm -hmm. like simple 
um, not overly complex, but robust uh, policies to say, look, when you come in, this is what the onboarding process looks like. This is what uh, our approach to professional development looks like. Setting all of this scaffolding up earlier on, not in a very complicated way, but in a regular way and checking in on it. Um, I think that re what that really does is it sets up all of these new hires to say, yes, I'm going to persist through the bumps and bruises that sometimes happen to being in an early stage company. I see what the prize is both for me and for the company. And therefore I'm going to take all of this great motivation that I have and really take us to new heights. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that really comes from, I think a lot of folks say, yes, I want my good people to ask for what they need, you know, and a lot of good people do do that. But I've also met a lot of really high performers who are self-sacrificers. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the stuff, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, not a lot um, of a talk, yeah. <laughs> right. And so if we leave our employees to fend for themselves, they may burn themselves out. And that's a mm -hmm. net negative, both for the individual and for the company. So the kind of solution and the question I ask is, what are the simple things we can do to make sure that our people are always feeling engaged, motivated, and growing? Um, because their success should be our success as a company. Um, and it doesn't, I think some, some founders may be, you know, uh, wary of words like process and protocol and things. And I understand that because we think process, bureaucracy, red tape, sclerotic and slow orgs. Um, but there are some processes that's almost like, you know, the, again, the scaffolding, if you're trying to build a really big building, right? You wouldn't want to that build can, a cathedral yeah, that's if you didn't have like a foundation. Yeah, you need something that can that can live on, you know, for, for a while. So um, I'll just repeat that though. The the myth was uh, hire great people and get out of their way. It should be hire great people and pave the way for their success. Is what Correct. you said. I couldn't Correct. agree with you more. That's absolutely wonderful. I'm taking that one home with me. There's another related one, and I would say it's a myth. I'm not sure if anyone's ever given me advice like this or said this explicitly, but I think it's a, a hidden assumption that's worth tackling. And this myth is that employee employee attrition means that you have failed. Um, so attrition is something that, again, is not a particularly savory topic uh, within the startup sphere. You hear about, mm -hmm. you know, things like churn and burn for early stage startups, and you hear about the stresses of working at early stage startups. And then when we think of attrition, because of that negative connotation, we tend to associate that painful feeling tone with the word. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think that that kind of innate, very human pain avoidance means that we don't think as thoughtfully as we might about attrition and how attrition is actually a really important aspect of the entire employee life cycle. And so I think to reframe the paradigm, I think what the thing that's worth saying here is number one, you know, you need to think about the life cycle, not just of one person, but your entire company. And the reality is, that not every hire is going to be the perfect hire. No one will ever have a 100% hit rate. And that is a fact that we'll all have to deal with, right? Study after study has proven that we all, as humans, tend to overrate our own abilities to make great people decisions. And even if you're great, you won't have a 100% hit rate. So that may seem like a little bit of a downer to start with, but here's the good news, right? I think what that means is that if we can just take a little bit more of a dignified approach to the way that we think about hiring and onboarding and performance management, you end up in less of these situations where either A, you have a really intractable kind of people issue that you may want to handle, or B, if someone's doing a really good job, then you can kind of keep steering them up and up and up, which is the flip side of the attrition equation. Now, the reason that I want to say this too is that sometimes we think that making one dismissal is failing the individual. It can be a really painful thing, right? 
And a lot of times, if there is a difficult discussion that needs to be had, we tend to avoid those difficult discussions because potentially there wasn't a robust process in place that led us down that mm -hmm. track to say, here's warning sign number one, here's warning sign number mm -hmm. two. And then the net result is that you have these ruptures where it's kind of these isolated things that have been going on and on and on that don't get dealt with kind of in a forthcoming way. But here's the real rub, and this is what we know about from organizational psychology, which is that sometimes it can be really painful to think about making one of these calls or even having one of these discussions. And yet, if you don't, and you know there's a problem, we know that having one person on a call or within a team who either is exhibiting some type of behavior that doesn't align with the culture or something that is also detracting from the team's results, that you're actually dragging people down around you. So the impact you get, if you're not thoughtful about kind of removing someone in a situation, you'll end up basically spiting the good people that you do want to keep because they're going to be mm -hmm. feeling the pain day in and day out. And so to, to kind of sum it up, the way that I would talk about this is that really you almost want to have a gardening approach to the way that you think about people, right? Not every plant that you buy at the shop <laughs> is going to grow based on the direction of sunlight in your house, the humidity mm -hmm. in the air, the temperature, or even just the season in which you decided to buy and plant this, right? And mm -hmm. the second side is, yes, if there are weeds in the garden or something that you don't want in the garden, you need to have a dignified conversation about that and provide that employee the opportunity to get better or to think about their opportunities elsewhere. Um, mm. It's a very difficult topic, but again, from what I've seen, ignoring the, the root cause of the issue doesn't make it any better. It tends to make it worse. And the longer they persist, the more, the more negative externalities there tend to be. Um, and so perhaps it's a little bit of a downer to discuss, but the reason I want to say it is that if, look, you, you hear about organizations like Netflix, for example, who have a bit more of a golden parachute style separation agreement. Um, that's one option of doing it. But really the kind of, the reason that I discuss is that the kind of organization that, that I would like to work for and that I try to enact and I think others would like to work for is the one where we can all be really transparent about what our progression paths look like, what's working and if something's not working, having a frank discussion about that so that we don't live in this place of anxiety and worry about whether or not it's good enough or if it's bad, what's going to happen next, right? It's all about giving people clarity and the way that things are coming down the pipeline so that they can take the steps they need to to be the best team member they can possibly be. I will add two points to, to everything that, that you just shared there. Firstly, um, I think when you're talking about like not having those difficult conversations, and, and I've been in human resources or people leadership functions for, for pretty much my entire career, um, not having those tough conversations you know, not only has all of the knock-on effects to, you know, toxic culture and all of that kind of thing, it's also damn unfair to the people who are doing a good job. You know, like, it, they, they're sitting there seeing this person beside them who's not performing, who's not pulling their weight, and, and what the knock-on effect can be is that, that the good people might start to leave because they think, well, you know, if, if that's what they're sort of putting up with, if, if, if that level of performance is okay, well, then why am I trying so hard, you know? Um, so I think the, the, the knock-on effect more to the, the high potential people and the high performers is, um, is even, you know, worse than the, than the sort of knock-on of keeping around some bad apples. But equally, I will share one anecdote um, of, from when I worked at LinkedIn. When we started as part of our orientation, onboarding, whatever you want to call it now, um, Mike Ganson, who was at the time was the global head of sales, he would start off the, the induction by saying, welcome to LinkedIn all of you will leave at some point. 
And from the global head of sales, you would sort of think, well, hang on, like surely he wants to keep everyone around for as long as possible. And it was very, very ingrained in the culture of LinkedIn to talk openly about the fact that, you know, some people, they came to the end of their run. Like maybe they were in a particular location or in a particular function that, you know, didn't have a new role for them where they were or, you know, after contributing and adding tremendous value for four years, it's time for them to go do that somewhere else. And that's okay, you know. Uh, the, the idea that we would spend all of our careers working to the same place, let me tell you, that died with our parents or their parents' generation. You know, like our our careers, our professional lives are a part of building experiences, building knowledge, um, building skills, and then and then taking that somewhere else and sharing that with another group of people. And I think, you know, in early stage companies, obviously, you don't want people to be leaving, you know, very, very soon after they start. But equally, maybe after two years, they've done what you needed them to do and it's time for them to go do that somewhere else and that's okay you know um and sometimes I think people are even afraid of more afraid of having that conversation and and I know um in a in a role that I had about uh three or four years ago I actually sat down with someone who quite young had only ever worked at that company and I said look I you know where where would your dream place be to work and he named the place I said oh I know I know the head of people at that company. Do you want me to put you in touch with her and see if there's anything that, that you could do? And he was absolutely horrified. And I, and I said, but, you know, if, if that's the right thing for you, then I'm happy to, to help steward that experience and, and coach you through that. Like, I, I want what's right for you as much as I want what's right for me. And that then, you know, means that potentially somebody else can get that opportunity. So I think it's, uh, you know, your perspective is an incredibly mature, incredibly um you know, well thought through one with, with regards to attrition. It's just we need to work out a way to get shareholders to see it from the same perspective because it's my experience that they tend to have even greater difficulty talking about attrition than, than you know, we do in, in early stage environments. So um, thank you, though, for, for sharing your perspective on that, um, Simon. I really appreciate it. And to those shareholders, <laughs> I would say, look, if attrition is a fact of life, you can either choose to be smart about it and being smart about it means discussing it and being planful uh or you can kind of allow it to to continue the gardening metaphor continue a lot to allow it to grow in the shadows and not really check on yeah. it right and then you'll have no idea what's growing in your closet six months from now <laughs> and that can be pretty funky from those who've had university accommodation um <laughs> are there any specific initiatives or focuses that you're looking to put front and center for 2021 your your kind of big big goals big objectives for next year yeah, um, it's a good it's a good question, and we're really excited for 2021. Um, broadly, both as a business and thinking through the people function that we have, I think from from a business standpoint, where we're at is very much where a lot of kind of recently funded Series A startups will find themselves, which is we have a core and growing user segment who like what we have to sell, and we're providing them tangible value. And now it's really about taking that initial kernel of fit um, and trying to turn that into something that is both larger and more sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what a lot of this ends up looking like is there's always going to be continuous product improvements to figure out how we can make that experience a lot more mm -hmm. seamless for our users, mm -hmm. but also crystallizing our value proposition and the way that we communicate to existing and new users so that our user acquisition just becomes a lot more of a well-oiled machine, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, as we all know, if you're trying to reach a broader audience or to reach a new audience, you have to be 
you have to really crystallize what you're saying to keep it really simple and bite-sized to bring new people in. So we're doing a lot of work, for example, to think through, hey, how can we make this pitch really sharp to help ease those new people into what our product is and help them to see the value? Because fundamentally with with our product, you know, it's it's similar to a podcast. It's, it's similar to other podcasting platforms that you might hear, but we don't yet have a language that's caught up to what, say, a curio story sounds like, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't call it a podcast. You wouldn't necessarily call it a track. It doesn't get there. So really trying to push the communications in the way that we talk about ourselves. From mm -hmm. a people standpoint, um, I think what, uh, what we've learned and what I've learned over the course of the last six months is really just trying to lay a solid lay of the land for what's happening in the company. And I think that leaves us, as we kind of dust off and get close to the end of the year, gives us a really good opportunity to come out with a robust set of people initiatives that particularly are supportive on things like uh, professional development and what that looks like for our teams. Um, and the way I think about this is we have loads of smart, talented folks who are super energized and motivated. How can I make sure that these folks are always supported to getting and achieving their own growth goals for themselves so that we can keep them at Curio and build a really sustainable product? Um, and so that begins, again, probably with a lot of listening to go around and ask folks what it is mm. that they think they what need they and mean. what they would like to see. Mm. Um, and then trying to co-create the answer in terms of a pretty robust roadmap that'll take us through the year and hopefully into Series B. Again, I love the fact that you're already so focused on retention. Um, you know, it, it, in some places, early stage, it can be a bit kind of churn and burn. You know, we need these people now, let's use them now, and then we'll need other people down the road. And, and you're really focused on, uh, you know, bringing great people in and, and keeping them there for, for the longer term as well, which I think is is a pretty unique perspective at Series A. So, you know, kudos to you for that. Um, what would you say is, is a challenge when it comes to scaling talent and people in an early stage um, organization that if you had a magic wand, you could kind of wave it away and it, it would no longer be that challenge. <laughs> um, you know, Marissa, I'm going to sound a little bit one note, but to be honest, if I could do one thing, um, I would make everyone in the organization better listeners, I think. And I don't say this because I think I'm the best listener by any means. Um, but when I've seen good listeners, particularly in leadership, um, if you've ever been in the room with a leader who knows how to listen to their team, incorporate the different information and then come up with a solution to it. I think we've all felt what that's like and you do feel something yeah. different in the room. And over time, mm -hmm. if you continue to witness it, you see how that leads to better business results, right? Greater mm -hmm. clarity and speed of decision-making, uh, which then leads to greater clarity and execution. And overall, because everyone has felt heard, they feel like the, uh, the company's direction has listened to what the direction that they want to see is. Mm -hmm. And in my role, not just at Curio, but kind of beyond um, and prior to it, I, being the kind of person who frequently facilitates meetings, tries to facilitate different decision points to a conclusion, I have the unique and pr pretty privileged perspective of seeing how disagreements can become dysfunction and what those symptoms look like. And so often, um, what I've seen is, you know, you get into a group, there's a decision to be made, there's three or four different stakeholders who each bring their own perspective, and they're each having tangential or orthogonal conversations with each other. Um, and the gist of it is, well, I think I'm right, here's why I think I'm right. And then somebody coming back and saying, I think I'm right, here's why I think I'm right, right? Or here's what's wrong about what you said. And you get a lot of back and forth. And I think what active, really good listening does is it allows us to switch from that kind of a control mindset, which is, I'm coming to this decision with an agenda to kind of win the day 
towards more of a kind of non-zero-sum mutual learning environment where we can come together and say, okay, here is the challenge. I maybe have 40% of the perspective that comes from this. Here are my assumptions. Here's my thinking. What do you think? What are you seeing? How can we then triangulate our points of mutual agreement and then try to come up with a solution? And it sounds, again, not to make it sound like the end-all be-all, but I have yet to encounter a challenge where taking a really thoughtful, empathetic listening approach to a decision like this hasn't at least clarified what's unknown or gotten us to a really quick point of saying, here's the interim decision and then we'll revisit. So I think if everyone could be a little bit better at listening, particularly in these thorny uh, issues, we would need less facilitation. There would be less time spent in meetings that nobody really understands what's going on or what the resolution is. Um, and overall, once you get the wheels humming and people running a bit faster, I think that motivation um, is a catalyst for even more motivation, right? And it becomes a virtuous cycle of uh, an organization coming together to learn from each other, to make smart decisions and to execute those quickly. Um, a few closing questions for you, Simon. Is there anything that you listen to or watch for inspiration day to day? Hmm. Um, obviously, I listen to Curio every single day. Um, you don't. Of course, <laughs> have to get that out of the way. Um, no, but all shameless plugs aside, there are a few podcasts that I typically uh, return to. I think some relatively big names. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim Ferriss' podcast I'll dip in and out of. Um, Sam Harris as well. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of his application and his podcast, Making Sense. Um, and there's another podcast as well called The Knowledge Project, uh, run by Farnham Street and interviewed by Shane Parrish. Again, these are a lot of the classic self-development um, I would say somewhat new age information driven podcasts. I really like them simply mm -hmm. because I think you can learn so much from the individual stories of these luminaries. Um, mm -hmm. It really humanizes a lot of the lessons and advice that we're told, but don't always internalize and kind of mm -hmm. really feel on an emotional level. Um, otherwise, I listen to very, very liberal doses of gangster rap to get through my day, particularly when it's crunching through admin. Um, <laughs> Happy I've to never share heard it described as liberal doses, but yeah, we, we, we've all got our thing. You know, for me, it's show tunes from Broadway from the 1950s, so, you know. <laughs> no, see, for you, it's show tunes. For me, it's pop smoke. You know, there's nothing more soothing for me than uh, just a, a roaring bass drum beating off my ears. And there's one thing that I have to say, especially because I'm back home in Massachusetts at the time of year, um, the film that never ceases to pick me up or inspire me when I need lifting is Goodwill Hunting. Um, it's, it, it just is the best, you know, it's a classic. Uh, I continue to work on my Matt Damon impression for the dollar and 49 cents late fees speech. It, it picks me up when I'm down. And to be honest, I think there are some, some good lessons buried in there as well, right? About um, being humble, no matter which environment you come from. And also learning to stay true to your roots. So I'll leave you with those. Hopefully that's, think, uh, that's good I'm enough for I'm so uh, glad that day. you said that, Simon, when you said I'm back home in Massachusetts and in my head just said, I was like, please say goodwill hunting, please say goodwill hunting. <laughs> How do you like them apples is one of the finest moments <laughs> of modern cinema. I love it. I love it. And of course, Robin Williams is in it, which, you know, uh, he, he's just an idol for me. Um, and then uh, finally, is there a people leader or founder or source of inspiration or anyone that you think we should try to secure as a future guest? someone that you really admire? 
Sure. So I was giving this a think. And the funny thing was, um, I saw this question in advance. And the first person I thought of was Alistair Fraser, who's now at the People Collective. And then I scrolled mm-hmm. through your back catalog and saw that you did an interview with his co-founder of the People Collective. <laughs> with Matt Bradburn, we uh, did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, Al. So Al was at Nested uh, when I joined. And we didn't work together a ton, but we've been in contact since then. Um, and Al is an absolute mensch, um, somebody who just gets it and has it together um, and understand what needs to be done and is an empathetic sort of fantastic human being. Um, a couple of people as well that I've worked with at Nested who I think are just super smart guys and are also working in the uh, people space, in the job seeking space, are Sam Franklin and Theo Margolius, who are two of the three co-founders over at Otta. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, immense respect for those who worked with them and BizOps when I was back at Nested. Um, and I think, you know, I think they were they were clued into something when it came to helping talent find the right jobs within leading startup spaces. And we've they've seen a lot of growth since then. And I think there's quite a lot of uh, great thinking behind that. The last person that came to mind is actually someone that I wouldn't say I'm very close with, but I've had actually only one really in-depth conversation with. Um, but Emily Lincoln Gordon, who works over at Attest, who is... Um, actually made a connection of mine through through a mutual friend and colleague. Um, and she's worked in people roles in the past, um, has a legal background as well. She's now general counsel at a test. And I think it's, I found it incredibly rare to find someone who is at the nexus of having a super, super sharp operations brain layered on with just a solid set of core values and empathy when it comes to communicating with folks and is just an expert communicator oh and on top of that she's general counsel as well so not lacking in the brains department everywhere um and i remember that one we had a one-hour conversation and i left that uh you know feeling more inflated and kind of built up than i had in a while so um i'm sure there's more where that came from if you wanted to reach out to her thank you and Simon, I'm just going to say thank you so much. I have learned a ton today, and I think um, if I can, if I can say, um, you have a real knack for explaining incredibly complex ideas or incredibly abstract ideas in very concrete, very specific, very practical ways. And I've really, really enjoyed hearing your perspective on things today. So thank you very, very much. Um, Truly, it was a pleasure to listen. Um, It's been absolutely fantastic. And hopefully we'll get to catch you again soon sometime. Take care. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really, really grateful. I've never been on a podcast before, so this is the first one. I'll always remember it fondly. Um, Mm -hmm. Glad to hear that it was valuable and would love to stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you.